Vain Church, let's join together now in a prayer of praise to our God. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, we come to you this day with grateful hearts of praise and adoration. We come to you because in your infinite wisdom, you created us to be worshipers. We come to you because your word commands us to do so. And we come to you because your amazing grace compels us to do so and to turn to you as our ultimate source of joy. For you are our creator God and we were made for you. Help us to rightly make you the sole desire of our heart, our soul, and our mind. This morning your church joins together to bless your glorious name and remember upon your steadfast character. We praise you, the triune God, the great I am. We thank you for the Father's plan of redemption, the Son's purchase of our redemption, and the Spirit's sealing of our redemption. Our God, we gaze in wonder of your omnipotence as you are fully able to execute anything that you so wish to do. In this, we, are, we have a sure confidence in you as our almighty God in whom nothing is impossible. We praise you for your omniscience. You see and know every step we take and you, and you continue to watch and protect us. And though you have seen and known our every sin that we have committed before you, in Christ you have cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. As far as the east is from the west, so far do you remove our transgressions from us. We praise you for your omnipresence in the midst of storms of life, though persecution would follow us, though famine would scorch our land, though wars would surround us on every side, even still you have promised that you will be with us and never forsake us. You will strengthen us, help us, and satisfy us by the comforting presence of your Holy Spirit. We stand in awe of your goodness. You are the very essence, the very embodiment of what is good, O oh God. And your goodness never wavers. You are the immutable, unchanging God. Though we will see and experience mercies that are new every morning, you, our merciful God, never change. Your faithfulness to your own glory is known throughout all generations. You are faithful to work out all things together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. Many times, Father, we see your goodness displayed when we look back and remember how your providential hand has moved and worked in our midst. As the psalmist says, you are in the heavens and you do whatever you please. We praise you for your sovereign power over every nation, every throne, every form of government. In recent history, Father, we praise you for your sovereign hand that brought about this great mercy upon our nation. We thank you for this monumental victory in the federal courts for the sake of the unborn. Help us to remember that the battle is not done, while also remembering that the battle isn't simply for political gain, but to be fishers of men, as we strive to spread the gospel not only in our nation, but to the ends of the earth. May we not live in a spirit of fear or in the fear of men, but in the fear of you alone. May our fear of you drive us to love men and women, even those who oppose you, Father. Lord, your word says that you are not just holy, not simply holy, holy, but that you, our God, are holy, holy, holy. 
And were it not for your holy son, we would have no right to even approach you today. But with you, forgiveness is found so that you may be feared in your holiness. God, we praise you for your justice and for your wrath that you poured out on sin. We pray this prayer in thanksgiving that for your people, your full and final wrath was laid upon Jesus Christ, who stood as our substitute. And one day, Father, when that final and glorious day of judgment comes, we will all sing to you this, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just. And we thank you that one day all will be made right, and you will be the vindicator of every evil committed against your people. Father, not in spite of your holiness and wrath, but because of your holiness and wrath, your everlasting covenantal love shines all the more brightly for we, your children. Lord, your love is so high, so wide, so deep, so grand, that mere human words can only scratch the surface of its magnitude. Your love for your children, a love from eternity's past, can never end, for it had no beginning. Your loving kindness is shown to us in more ways than we can fathom, and it permeates your heart in such a way that you would leave the 99 to save that one lost sheep. Lord God, because of these things and many more, you are infinitely worthy of all praise and affections. Oh God, please never let us lose the wonder of your worth and your glory. Your glory far exceeds all human intellect. We cannot add anything to your worth or to your glory, nor are you in need of our worship. Yet even still, because of the blood of Jesus and the witness of your spirit, you call and enable your people to rightly worship you. We praise you this day for all that you are and all that you have done. We pray this in the name of Christ. may be turning in your Bible or scrolling. I will eventually learn that in your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, as you're doing so, a couple of things. Um, first, a bit of Disappointing news. The gentleman we were pursuing in hopes of being our associate pastor has declined to take this any further with us. And so, just giving you a heads up, we will, personnel team will be regrouping and uh, get back to you when we have somebody else to consider. Didn't want you wondering about that. Please don't be sad. The Lord knows the right man for this position. And we want that to be the case, so we'll see what he does, all right? Um, secondly, I don't think Matheson and Eliza Eaton are here this morning, or are they? And I didn't know. Are you there? You are. Do we have a baby here somewhere? 
Nursery. Is that what I heard? Nursing. <laughs> Oy vey, this is what happens whenever you freestyle up here. <laughs> anyway, they, they had a baby. Anyway, and he's, he's here somewhere. Yay. All right, this, I'm, I'm a little better with this one. Stephen and Jessica are here, and James and Jude are holding court at NICU, right? So they're entertaining over there. We are glad you're here. We're glad they're well. Congratulations, Mom and Dad. And I will not pass this opportunity. The fact that Roe v. Wade was ruled unconstitutional is an answer to prayer that for many of us has been prayer for decades. I was thankful that Nathan prayed in those lines and my brothers and sisters let us let us rejoice that the legality has been diminished let us grieve at the hard attitudes the clamor to have this so-called right let us grieve, let us be sorrowful, let us cry out to God. My friends, this, this is not merely a matter of legalities, although that is important. It is also much a matter of heart and attitude. What we see before us is the proverb, all who hate me love death. And that, my friends, is heartbreaking. Now, to the text. Second Peter chapter 1. We're calling this series Faithful Reminders for Foolish Times. And I actually want to begin reading again at the first verse and read down through the fourth verse, though we'll only focus today on verses 3 and 4. I know some of you said, well, you already preached verses 1 and 2. Yes, I did. And I do remember that. That said, let's begin at verse 1. Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. And now, Father, grant to us by your Spirit that we rightly see and hear 
understand and apply this, your word. Oh, Lord, feed us, for we are desperately hungry. Let us be satisfied and nourished by this. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Far too much that we hear today sounds like this. Come one, come all, step right up and find the secret to the victorious Christian life. Come hear me. I'll tell you the secret that will make you a success. Are you tired of failure? Are you worried about weakness? Listen while I explain to you things never before explained. Does that not sound painfully familiar? And it sells because Christians oftentimes don't think they're doing well at Christian living. In fact, I dare say if I were to do an informal straw poll this morning and ask you how you were doing in the Christian life, it would tend to tilt towards, well, I don't think I'm doing very well. Nothing new under the sun. There's always this idea that if, if somebody could just tell us that one secret, that one thing, that, that we don't know that something, then we'd do better at this and everything would be lovely. And we'd be as good a Christian as we ought to be. Peter is battling here for the life of the church. Part of what he's fighting is, in essence, really something we still see today. The Bible scholars will tell us that what Peter is fighting against, invading the church, is Gnosticism. Now that's a mouthful of a word. Even begins with a G that you don't pronounce, which that makes it a weird word all the way around. Or they're a little more specific. It's actually incipient Gnosticism. Meaning that full-blown Gnosticism doesn't happen for a few decades out. So what do we talk about when we reference Gnosticism? Well, it's something that actually shows up in some form or another, and it seems to be referenced both by um, Peter here in 2 Peter, by John in 1 John, and by Paul at least in Colossians, if not in other places. And here's kind of what it taught. Spirit and matter are inevitably and entirely and irretrievably separated. Spirit is always good. Matter is always evil. And so to explain the world in which they found themselves, they would affirm that there is a God. But this God is entirely spiritual out here and very far removed from the physical world. And they came up with this idea. How does, if spirit is always good and matter is always evil, how do you end up with a material world? So here was their answer. This entirely pure spiritual God had what they called emanations. Now, that's a fun way of saying that from this entirely spiritual God came forth, uh, they, they, they would use another term, an aeon. A-E-O-N, for those of you that want to know those things. 
a somewhat lesser God who came from the original God. And from that God, there came another aeon or emanation. And he was a little less than number two and less than number one. And eventually, there were enough of these emanations out here that you got down to a God who was ignorant enough and wicked enough to create a physical world. And when they took this and applied it to Christianity, what they said was that God is the ignorant, bad God of the Old Testament. And that Jesus came into the world to help us through this a special knowledge to get back to being spiritual. And that you got that spirituality by secret special knowledge. And that special knowledge was something that only special people had. Who'd have thought? So they referred to themselves as being spiritual. I'm, th- I'm grateful to S. Lewis Johnson who worked through this. And he, he, they called themselves the pneumatikoi, literally the spiritual ones. So the pneumatikoi, according to the Gnostics, were followers of this idea. And they were spiritual men. And they were so spiritually and intellectually equipped that they could become as good as Jesus. In fact, Irenaeus, one of the early church fathers, will speak of them, saying some of them believed that some of them could become even better than the Lord Jesus and could attain direct union with God. Now, can I let you in on a little sum? We have versions of Gnosticism today that somehow through a special knowledge, some special action, if you learn these things and grasp these things, you eventually become really, really, really spiritual. The uglier versions of it want to charge you a fee, of course. Or, you know, you show up their crusade and give enough money and you'll learn and you'll get to be spiritual too. I will say that among pseudo-Christian cults, the entirety of Christian science is a version of Gnosticism. And by that I mean, yes, our neighbor up here on the hill. Okay? This is a version of Gnosticism. It's salvation through head knowledge and secret interpretations and understandings. I'll take it a step further. You live in a culture that is thoroughly Gnostic. You know how I know that? Because biology, DNA, and Hard, fast, material reality no longer matters. It doesn't matter that you were born with a certain DNA if inwardly you feel like you're not what you were born biologically and gender. You may alter that because gender is fluid. My friends, let me say this real plain, just up front clear. That is a lie. 
And it's not just a lie, it's a dumb one. I mean, this, this beggars the imagination. And I know I've offended some people by saying that. And I'm sorry that you're offended, but my friend, you're trying to live in a fantasy that is going to destroy your very existence. Well, I struggle. Welcome to the human condition. Well, I battle with desires. Welcome to the human condition. My friends, I say this not, please understand, this is not a cruelty. And let me clarify, let me say this well. We, we talked earlier about Roe v. Wade and the whole issue of abortion. I have little doubt there's somebody under the sound of my voice today who has been through this. And I want to tell you, my friend, if you've been through an abortion, the Lord Jesus will forgive you. There is grace and peace and life in Jesus Christ. And I'll say this, go a step further. If you struggle with desires, if you're battling identity, please know the Lord in His love and redemption is here for you and will pour out that grace and kindness on you. My friend, we gain nothing by denying reality. We gain nothing by rebelling against what the Lord has made us to be. Now, I segue from that to say the apostle here, Peter, is doing such a glorious thing because he is denying that there's this separation. If there's anybody that ought to be able to claim a separation, it ought to be an apostle who saw Jesus in the transfiguration, who was there from the beginning, who saw him walk on water, who nearly drowned and the Lord pulls him up out of the water, who confesses, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, who was there at his crucifixion, who was there at his resurrection, who is preaching on the day of Pentecost. If there was ever a man who ought to claim a spiritually elitist position. It was Simon Peter. But what does Simon Peter call himself in the first verse? Simeon Peter, a what? Servant. Slave. Of Jesus Christ. Not only that, he goes on to say, to those who have obtained a faith of what? Equal standing with ours. From the outset, the apostle is slamming this idea of this bifurcated spirituality with really spiritual people up here and the rest of us plebeians down here. No. We are all partakers of equal standing in the sight of God for our salvation is in Jesus Christ. And then we start the battle, right? I don't think I'm doing very good. I keep stumbling and messing up. And battle the same sin. I think I've killed the thing, then it stands up and kicks me in the head. That sound familiar? Or you, you, if you think you got one, you've got the sword in him, he's dying and dead, and then another one you didn't even recognize comes up and hits you, right? Let me give you some encouragement here. We think our personal weakness and circumstances make Christian living nearly impossible. And I'm telling you, according to the Apostle 
Peter, you have been given everything you need for Christian living. Did you hear that? Christian, every single Christian here, you have been given already everything you need for Christian living. But, but, but I, 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 I don't feel like You have been given everything. Now, let me prove my point. Number one, the gift of divine power. Verse three, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. Eternal life and godly living are the goals. How does this happen? Well, his divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness. These are not in us naturally. They have to be given to us. This is a humbling reality. But my friend, it's not within your ability or power to attain eternal life, nor once having attained it, to live a Christian life. Our faith is not merely a fire insurance policy where we just trust in Him and there's this transactional relationship and nothing changes. Faith is the gift of God that actually affects then how you live your life from that time forward. It changes you. There is a transformation. Now please, I know something that, well, now Doug, that transformational stuff, if I start looking there, I get discouraged. Okay, remember, you're saved by Christ's action. Okay? You're not saved by anything you do, have done, will do. That is not what gets you into the kingdom. When you stand before the Lord on judgment day, you are not there to recite your resume of accomplishments so the Lord can weigh that against your failures to decide whether you get in. You are before the Lord saying, the only basis I have to claim a place in your kingdom is the righteousness of your Son. He is my salvation. Okay? But with that comes a change. Paul will say in Philippians 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only is in my presence, but much more in my absence. What does he tell you to do? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that sounds hard. For it is God who works in you. Okay, so what does he do? Both to will and to work at his good pleasure. Now, whoa, whoa, preacher, you tell me that God is at work in me so that he's the one that makes me have the will to obey. Yep. I'm sorry, that sounded very Ozark, didn't it? Correct. He works in you to will and to work. Well, how do I know? He told you. Well, how do I know? That do. Just go do. 
Well, shouldn't I wait? No. Obedience is not to be waited upon. What the Lord tells you to do, go do. Well, I don't know if I can do it. He just said he gives you the power to will and to do. All right? This divine power has been granted to you for everything that pertains to life and godliness. Christian, here's the question. Do you believe that no matter what comes your way, what blessing or blasting, what apparent good or evil, whatever trial, suffering, or difficulty, do you believe the Lord has given His power to you so that you can do what you're called to do? According to Peter, the answer should be yes. Hmm. They're not ours naturally. He grants them. He grants them for a purpose and through a reality. They are not just given to us, they are given to us when we come to know God. Notice how he says it, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Through the knowledge of Him. See, there's more to Christianity than mere doctrine, but there is not less. I've got to be careful here. I always get nervous when people start driving wedges between your head and your heart. Well, you just got a bunch of head doctrine. Did that ever get down? My friend, it's never bifurcated or, or separated in the Scripture. The head and the heart are all to be united. What you know, you ought to love. What you love, you ought to know. And the knowledge first is knowledge of God. You get to know God. And not the God who's going to judge and destroy you because you are wicked and He is absolutely holy, holy, holy. Yes, that God. But more than that, the God who has come to you in gracious salvation in the person and work of His Son and the power of His Holy Spirit and has declared to you through His Word what is true and how you may be reconciled to Him. Listen to the way uh, Mr. Spurgeon put this. This was... He was in his early 20s, maybe a teenager actually at this point. He opened a sermon on the 7th of January in 1855 with these words. It has been said by someone that proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. See, my brother says, this thing is more than, than just fire insurance. It's more than just an escape from hell. You are being called into a living relationship with the one true God who gladly looks at you now and calls you his child. Mm. Jesus will say in John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Paul will say in Philippians 3, his goal that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. The first of the gifts is the gift of divine power. He has granted this to you, everything you need for life and godliness through your knowledge of Him. My friend, if you ever cut off the life and godliness from your knowledge of Him, it turns into nothing more than duty and misery. 
And isn't this, isn't this how our lives actually work in, in genuine relationships? Right? You know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff. This is always fun to talk with with couples when they get married. Because, you know, when you're in love and you're young and everything's about the emotions and how wonderful everything is. And then you come to pastor for premarital counseling and I start talking things about, you know, division of labor. Who's going to do what? Well, we didn't talk about that. You ought to. Who's taking out the trash? Who's cooking? Who's paying the bills? Well, that's, that's not very romantic. <laughs> I'm here to tell you, if you don't straighten that stuff out, romance tends to go flying far, far away. <laughs> hmm? Why is that? The relationship motivates us, or should, right, for the way we behave toward one another, even in little things, in terms of how we care for one another, how we show that love, and those can be very pedestrian things, can't they? Just kind of ordinary stuff. It's true of our children. We love our children, but you all notice that raising children... Man, a lot of work. I mean, it's, you know, rightly, we call it labor to bring them into this world. But that's just the beginning of labor. Because there's all that stuff that goes with it, right? All that training, all that care, all that nurturing, all of that correction, all of that stuff. And it's born out of what? The relationship. When you wake up in the middle of the night and the little one is cranky again, you're not feeling necessarily warm fuzzies at that moment. You're questioning whether this was a good idea. Now don't sit there and deny it because you've done it. You don't want to admit it. My friend, whenever in a relationship with the Lord, it shifts us. Now, look next, the gift of precious promises, verse 4. And yes, I am aware of the time. <laughs> By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. What are the nature of these promises? I love the way that Peter writes this. He calls them precious and very great. Here again, Spurgeon said something glorious on this. Many things are great which are not precious, such as great rocks, which are of little value. On the other hand, many things are precious that are not very great, such as diamonds and other jewels. But here we have promises that are so great, they're not less than infinite, and so precious, they're not less than divine. Great, precious promises. 
The promises of God, said one brother Winslow, the promises of God are the jewelry of the Bible. Every page of this sacred volume is rich and sparkling with these divine assurances of Jehovah's love and faithfulness and power towards His people. Upon no spot in the wilderness can the believer plant his foot, strange and untrodden though that path may be, but a gem from his casket meets his eye, the sight of which inspires his heart with confidence, his spirit with comfort, his soul with hope. The nature of these promises, they are great, they are precious, and you ought to treat them that. You should see that. But further, the content of these promises. The Puritan Thomas Manton said, God's heart's so big, with thoughts of good to us, that his love cannot wait for the accomplishment of things, but he must tell us beforehand. He tells us what he's doing. He tells us what he's done. He tells us what he's going to do. You and I should esteem these promises. And what do they look like? Well, let me just give you a quick sampling. We're told by Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, all the promises of God find their yes in Him, that is in Christ. That's why it's through Him that we utter our amen or amen to God for His glory. Do you understand Paul's premise there? Everything God promises to the believer is yes, and it's yes because of Jesus. Jesus secures the promises. 1 John 2, 25, this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. Or 1 Corinthians, the second chapter, that as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Hebrews chapter 8. This is the covenant I make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I'll put my laws into their minds, write them on their hearts. I'll be their God, they'll be my people. Ezekiel 36, 26, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you and I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. Or Hebrews 11, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised but having seen them and greeted them from afar and have acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What are the promises? It's the promises of faith, of justification, of righteousness, of sanctification, of spiritual gifts, of providence, of getting us home. We shall one day be glorified in His presence. My friend, it is not enough that we merely believe our sins are forgiven in Christ. Thank God that is true, and we ought to believe that. But it doesn't stop there. I'm not merely one who is forgiven. I am to be a partaker of the divine nature. I am made a new man, a new creation, a new being. And to reveal, I'm to reveal and manifest those characteristics. This is the calling. Now, Dr. Lloyd-Jones is spot on there. But what does it mean to be like that? I mean, preacher, are you, are you like the TV guys who say we're, we're gods like he's God? No, no, no. Let's not go further than the text goes. All right? There are some attributes of God that we can call incommunicable. That's a mouthful of words, say. They can't be shared. Okay? God is. Okay? 
you're, you're good with that, right? Ponder this for a minute. When did God begin? He didn't. God doesn't have a beginning. When does God end? He doesn't. God doesn't have an ending. God is. How did he reveal himself? I am who I am. Right? I don't know about you, but I struggle with the idea of things without beginnings and endings. It bends my head a little bit, right? Start getting intellectual bends after a little bit. God is absolutely spirit. I'm not. Not going to be. There are things about God that are not shared. God is in and of himself eternal. I'm given eternal life, but it doesn't abide naturally with me. But there are attributes that are communicable. Knowledge. God knows far more than I know, but I can have knowledge. I can have some wisdom, volitional attributes. I can possess goodness, holiness, righteousness, moral attributes. I do not possess them the way God possesses them, but as a Christian, those belong to me as well. This is the sharing in the divine nature. Now, how do I know that's primarily what he's talking about? Because how does he end that verse? having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. It's primarily about sharing God's moral nature. You and I are made more and more like Christ. Holiness. But you see, this isn't holiness just for the sake of holiness. It is holiness anchored in the reality of divine promises guaranteed because he is doing the work within us that we are made partakers of the divine nature and it grows out of the fact that you and I actually know God. Hmm. What is it that enables a Christian to face persecution? What was it that enabled our forefathers and even our contemporaries and other cultures today to die, to die for the faith? It's not a matter of mere principle embraced. Rather, it is because of a living, real, powerful relationship to the one true God whom we love and fear more than any human being. And my friend, this is the joy of the Christian life. Parents, don't ever reduce being a Christian when you're talking to your children. Don't reduce it down to salvation from hell and gaining heaven. It is that, but please don't let it be just that. And please don't let it just be, well, I want you to grow up and be good. Okay? And please don't turn it into whether they obey you or not is determinative of whether or not they're actually really Christians. That's a form of works that's just a little dangerous, can I tell you? Because I'll let you on a little secret with kids. Their obedience to you is about as good as your obedience to your father. Hmm? I know, made a little uncomfortable. That's all right, you needed to be for a minute. I'm not saying you let them get away. I'm saying you, you love them. You hold before them the reality of what this eternal life is. You show them that it's about knowing God. 
My fear, my friends, is too many times we take this grand, glorious, majestic doctrine and reality of salvation and the glory of knowing the one true God in the three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, of living under His world and His reign and living in His kingdom and the hope and joy of the future and we hammer it and push it down into this tiny little thing that has no power to inspire nor really convict What we embrace here is glorious beyond our comprehension. But let's give it a shot. Let's take the language of Peter. He has given us great and precious promises. He has made us partakers of the divine nature. He has called us His. Christian, everything you need, you've been given. Believe that. Rejoice in that. And pursue Him. Let's pray. Father, we have an unfortunate capacity to make glorious things sound small and to take things that are actually rather small and make them far larger than they should be. Lord, we get our priorities wrecked, we get things confused. We struggle, we battle because of suffering or unexpected troubles. Our enemy tempts us and whispers in our ears that we are not loved. Our own hearts betray us at times. Father, in a very real sense, we pray you save us from ourselves and save us from our enemy. We pray, Lord, that we would believe truly that you have granted us everything we need for life and godliness. And Lord, that we would peer into those things. They don't arise in us naturally. We would see in the scripture what it is you have done for us and that we would believe and hang all of our hopes on great, precious promises and trust that we have been made partakers of the divine nature through our knowledge of you, and escaping the corruptions of this world. Oh Lord, grant that to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with me. Let's sing in worship and response now to this word from our God. Mm-hmm.